Psalm 145. I want to talk to you tonight about the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. Now, Psalm 145 is a Hebrew poem, and uh, it's written by David, and it is a it is a Hebrew acrostic. And an acrostic is really beautiful. There are seven acrostics in the book of Psalms. And acrostics are, are poems that are written using the Hebrew alphabet. And each stanza starts with the, the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So the first stanza starts with the Hebrew letter Aleph. The next stanza starts with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet, the Hebrew letter Beit, and then Gimel, and then Dalet, Hey, Vav, and Zion. It works all the way through the Hebrew alphabet. We can't see this in our English translations, but if we were reading this in Hebrew, we'd see how each stanza starts with a successive uh, letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So it's beautiful. There's a lot of thought put into this, and, and it's really organized well. And the central theme of Psalm 145, I believe, is found in verse 3, where David writes, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. David is writing this psalm because he wants us to understand how great God is. He wants us to further comprehend the greatness of God. Now, let's just talk for a moment. Let's give and take here. Why does David want us to understand God's greatness? What, what do you think his motivations are behind that? Why is it a big deal that we grow in our comprehension of the greatness of God? Any answers? So be a better witness, right? When you're excited about God, you want to talk about God, right? And I think, I think one of the reasons that we don't talk much about the Lord is because we're just not that amazed by Him anymore. And when we recapture that amazement at the greatness of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, the power of God, the goodness of God, the patience of God, all these things we've talked about, when you recapture your wonder, talking about Him just comes naturally. It's like the first time I got to Memphis when Claire and I moved up here, I had Memphis barbecue for the very first time. I went to Corky's. And you know what I did? I called my parents. And I said, you, you cannot believe how good the barbecue is up here. They put coleslaw on your barbecue sandwich. And it's awesome. And I just want to talk about how good the Memphis barbecue was. Because it was just wonderful. When you love something, when you're excited about something, you want to talk about it, right? And so I think it's, a, I think it's great, Miss Mickey, that, that, that David wants us to understand the greatness of God. God wants us to understand his greatness. So we'll just talk about him in a more natural uh, way in our lives. What's another reason that we need to grow in our knowledge of the greatness of God? Or be reminded of the greatness of God. What's another reason? Oh, that's good. That's really good. She said, when you know how great he is, it, it, it reminds you how small your problems are in comparison to his, his greatness. I heard a preacher say one time, and it's a great statement. He said, instead of telling God how big your problems are, tell your problems how big your God is. That's good, isn't it? So, yeah, that's good. It, it, it helps put things in perspective. It really does when you realize that God is great. And tonight, what we're going to talk about tonight, the sovereignty of God, that he's in control, he's calling the shots, is really helpful when you're going through difficulty. So that, that's great. Yeah, other, other thoughts tonight about why we need to grow in our comprehension of the greatness of God. That, what's that? Yeah, right. If he makes promises, but he's not powerful, and he's not all-knowing, and he's not good, then we can't trust him to come through on his promises, can we? But if he makes promises, and he is good, and he is powerful, and he is all-knowing, and he never changes, then we can absolutely take his promises to the bank, right? And so that's great. Yeah, we can rely on his promises. Ms. Bonnie, what'd you say? Yeah, encourage us. Yeah, just encouragement that this is the God I serve. 
He's great. He's big. He's, he's mighty. What about, uh, what about worship? Does this affect our worship any? When you grow in your comprehension of God's greatness, does it affect your worship any? How? How does it affect your worship? He's worthy. It makes you want to be more in the Scripture, right? Could it change your Sunday morning any? How could it change your Sunday morning? Passionate. He's so great, you can't wait to get there and, and say how great he is, right? And worship him, be in his presence, hear from his word. How, did it, how can it affect your personal daily worship? Daily time with God. How? What's that? Yeah, yeah, I get a chance every day to spend time with God in the Holy of Holies, in his very presence, and I can go anytime I want and stay as long as I want. Is that not an amazing thought? Now, if the Jewish people, the Old Testament uh, Jewish nation, if they heard that we had the opportunity to spend time in the Holy of Holies anytime we want, say as long as we want, because remember, under the, uh, uh, the, the law, the, the sacrificial law, under, under the, the law that God gave to Israel, only one man a year, the high priest, could go in the Holy of Holies once a year. One man, one time a year, right? Everybody else had to stand and watch. And if they heard that you and I could go into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God, anytime we want, and spend time with Him, and talk to Him, and listen to Him, they would be amazed that we don't do it more. It'd be amazed that we don't pray more than we do, right? So yeah, when you know He's great, you don't want to miss an appointment with Him, do you? You don't. Any other thoughts about why we need to grow in our knowledge of the greatness of God? Yeah, it's relationship, right? We grow in our we we find our joy, our satisfaction, our contentment in our great God and not in our circumstances or not in the little trinkets of this world. We find our joy in him because he is so great. And so I hope you're seeing by this little dialogue we're having that this is important stuff, that we, we, we study this and we learn these things together. We, we grow in our knowledge of the greatness of God. Here's how Charles Spurgeon said it. You know, I'm a big Charles Spurgeon fan. He wrote, the highest science, actually a sermon, he, he preached this, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls Father. In other words, there's nothing more important than what we're about to do right here. Learning more about God. There's no, there's no better use of your time than what's about to happen right now. Now, do you believe that? Well, three of you do. That's good. Okay, that's encouraging. So for the three of you that believe that, I'm going to talk to you tonight. The rest of y'all take a nap, uh, get some coffee. Uh, now, I, 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 listen, I really believe, I really believe that what we're about to do right here is of utmost importance. Life-changing, okay? So let's talk about the greatness of God. Tonight I want to talk about God's sovereignty. Look with me in Psalm 145. Psalm 145. Look in verse 10. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your what? Kingdom. And tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds, and the glorious splendor of your what? And then in verse 13, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion, your rule and reign endures 
throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. And so in the middle of this psalm, as David points us to the greatness of God, David spends some time recognizing that God is a great king who rules over his kingdom. And he's speaking here of God's rule and reign. He's speaking here of God's sovereignty. Um, Theologians refer to this as God being sovereign. Let me show you another verse that speaks to this. Turn to Psalm 135, just a few chapters before the one we're in. Psalm 10 chapters before. Psalm 135, verse 6. This speaks to the fact that God is sovereign. Here it is. You ready? Whatever the Lord pleases, whatever he wants to do, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. So whatever God wants to do, and hey, quick question. If God wants to do something, is it the right thing to do? Yes, because God's good, right? So whatever God wants to do, which is always good, he's going to do it. Because he's sovereign, he's in control, he's powerful, he can can pull it off. This speaks of God's sovereignty. What I want to do is, I want to define the sovereignty of God for you, give you some some hooks to think through this a little bit. Then I want to talk to you about the different spheres that God is sovereign over. And then I want to talk about the implications for our lives. What does this mean for us in our daily living? I hope this is going to be helpful to you tonight and, and very practical. So let's define, first of all, by what we mean when we say God is sovereign. Here, here it is. The doctrine of the sovereignty of God states that God is in absolute, total, and complete control of everything and everybody. The doctrine of the sovereignty of God states that God is in absolute, total, and complete control of everything and everybody. His sovereignty is assured by His omnipotence. That means He's all-powerful. His omniscience, that means He's all-knowing. And His position as creator. In other words, because He created things, He gets the right to call the shots. So, the fact that He's all-powerful, the fact that He's all-knowing, the fact that He has created everything... It means that he is in control of the heavens and the earth, the created order and everything. T.P. Pierce, a theologian, says it like this. God's sovereignty means that God possesses all power and is the ruler of all things. God rules and works according to his eternal purpose, even, uh, even through events that seem to contradict or oppose his rule. Let me read that again. God possesses all power and is the ruler of all things. God rules and works according to his eternal purpose, even through events that seem to contradict or oppose his rule. Have you looked around at society lately and said, man, things are spinning out of control? Have you thought that? And you think, this is, this is, this is crazy. Things are disintegrating. But we've got to realize that even in the midst of all that, God's in control. And he's working out his purposes. And eventually... When the dust of human history settles, everyone will see how God carried out his perfect plan. And so God is in control. God is calling the shots. That's what we mean when we say God is sovereign. So let's just kind of break that down a little bit and think through the different spheres over which God exercises his rule and reign. For example, God is, first of all, sovereign over people. He's sovereign over people. Uh, turn over to Ezra chapter 1, Old Testament book of Ezra. I want to show you a couple of examples of this. And we won't have time to turn to every text tonight. You can look at those texts for further study. But look in Ezra chapter 1. 
the, the context here is um, some, uh, some Jewish people were, were leaving Babylon where they were taken into exile and captivity. It was God's judgment upon them, but God graciously allowed them to return home. And a group went uh, back to Jerusalem from Babylon. Uh, the king allowed them to go. And they went back for the express purpose of rebuilding the temple to reestablish the worship of the one true God among God's people. And it says in Ezra chapter 1, verse 5, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, and everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So it's very clear. God stirred some folks up so that they would want to go rebuild the house. The, the temple, and so we see here God is, is directly intervening in human affairs in specific people's lives to give them a desire to go do something that he wanted them to do. Does everyone see that? Turn, turn over to Daniel. Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. Right after the book of Ezekiel. Look in verse 8, Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. So Daniel was a young man who was Hebrew, who was taken out of uh, Jerusalem, Judea, to Babylon in captivity. And as he was living among the Babylonians, he resolved to obey God's law and stay true to his faith, even though he was surrounded by pagan idolaters. And by the way, did you know you can live in a place as wicked as Babylon and still be godly? You hear what I just said? And that's important because, because what's happening in America is this. It's not Mayberry outside of those doors anymore, is it? It's Babylon. So we got to learn, hey, you can be godly in Babylon. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, I like their Hebrew names better, they prove that you can be godly in Babylon. So Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And so God works directly in this, this official's heart to show Daniel favor. God directly intervening, the God of the universe, the God who spoke the universe into existence, is directly intervening in human affairs so this man in the court of the Babylonian king will show favor to a Hebrew boy named Daniel. That's pretty extraordinary, isn't it? He shows favor because it says God worked. Uh, God gave Daniel favor by working through the chief of the eunuchs. You know the rest of the story? He ate water and vegetables for 10 days. And uh, at the end of 10 days, he and the other Hebrew boys were healthier than the other young men that were eating the king's food. And that was just God uh, giving them uh, supernatural strength. Uh, to, to show that when you obey God, he will, he will bless in that and give you what you need. I don't, by the way, this is a, another sermon, but I don't necessarily believe that Daniel 1 is a diet plan um, for a couple reasons. One, it's only 10 days long in here. So if you want to say, I'm going to eat bread, I mean vegetables and water for 10 days, then you're doing the Daniel plan, okay? Uh, but so I'm, I'm not, if you're doing that, that's fine. If you want to eat vegetables and water, that's fine. Uh, I want to keep on eating some meat and, and s- some other things. But uh, but if you want to do that, that's fine. But, uh, but it's not, it's the, the, the point is not this is a good diet. The point is God supernaturally gave these Hebrew boys strength, even though they weren't eating the rich food of, 
uh, the king, and he gave them favor in the eyes of this court official. We see that all throughout Daniel, by the way. So God is sovereign over people, and there are more examples in the Bible where God is directly working in individual people's lives to accomplish his will and his way. But not only is God sovereign over people, God is sovereign over nations and kings. He's sovereign over nations and kings. Look with me in Psalm 33. Psalm 33, verse 10. Psalm 33, verse 10. The Bible says in Psalm 33.10, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. So here's what he's saying. He's saying you have these nations that have their plans and their ideas and their agendas and things they're trying to accomplish. But God can just bring them to nothing when he chooses. The Bible is clear that God raises up nations and he tears them down according to his will and how he wants human history to go. Look over in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 with me. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Let me show you this again. 2 This is Jehoshaphat praying to God and in 2 Chronicles 20 verse 6 he says, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all. Remember what I said about the word all? Small word, big implications. You, you rule over all, he says, the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. So Jehoshaphat understands that God is ruling over all the nations and the kings. It says that over in Proverbs 21. Look there with me on your way to Daniel. Stop by Proverbs real quickly. And look in Proverbs 21.1 with me. This is such an important idea. I want to really drive this home. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And so saying that the heart of the king, the, the, the purposes of the king is really in the hands of God. He can turn their desires, their direction, their rule and reign, just like we can redirect water that easily. God is in control of nations and kings. And there's really a a powerful example of this illustration found in the book of Daniel. Turn to Daniel. I want to show you what happened to one of the most powerful men that's ever lived on the earth. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. And at this time, the Babylonians were king of the mountain. They were, they were powerful. Large army, kingdom of great s- splendor. You've, you've heard of the seven wonders of the ancient world. One of those seven wonders were the hanging gardens of Babylon. I mean, it was just a a huge kingdom and a powerful kingdom. And Nebuchadnezzar was a powerful king ruling over this kingdom. And look what happens in Daniel chapter 4, verse 28. This really ought to drive this point home. It says, All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And so Nebuchadnezzar's walking around the roof, surveying his kingdom, and he's feeling pretty good about himself. Look at what I have done. But look what happens next. While the words were still in the king's mouth, 
there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. Did you get that? And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. Here's this great, powerful king crawling around on all fours, eating grass in the field. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. He becomes animal-like out in, in nature. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And what does he do? I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none, listen, none can stay his hand. Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man on the planet at this time. And he says nobody can stop God when he wants to move. Or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. Isn't that remarkable? For all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. So, question, is God in control of kings? Absolutely. I mean, he forced Nebuchadnezzar out to eat grass like a cow. I mean, he controlled Nebuchadnezzar. And, and Nebuchadnezzar came to place and said, listen, he's God, he's the real king, and nobody can stop him. And so that's just a poignant illustration that God is sovereign over nations and kings. You know, you, you look at the landscape what's happening in our world today, and you see things happening in Syria and Iran and, and, and Russia and, and uh, you know, just some different things happening that are, that are troubling and, and problematic and, and a little bit scary. It's important to remember that God holds the hearts of kings in his hand, and he turns them like water. And from our perspective, it's scary and uncertain. From God's perspective, he's working out his plan. And when the dust of human history settles, we will all say, wow, look at what God did and how he turned history to go whatever direction he wanted it to go so that he would get all of the glory. Pretty awesome, isn't it? So we don't have to worry. We don't have to worry. We can trust that God is in control of nations and kings, even evil kings. God is in control. Here's the third thing God is sovereign over, the third, third sphere. He's, he's sovereign over nature. He's sovereign over nature. Look what Job says about God. Right before the book of Psalms, you have the book of Job. Look what Job says about God in Job chapter 37. It's one of the great chapters that speak of God's power and sovereignty. Job 37 verse 3. It's actually Elihu talking. He was one of Job's friends, and it leads into uh, God's last speech before Job then speaks. Elihu says in Job 37, 3, Under the whole heaven he lets it go, and is lightened to the corners of the earth. After it his voice roars, he thunders with his majestic voice. He does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. Elihu got some things wrong, but he got it right here, that God's in control of, of weather, of, of the weather patterns. Uh, look over in... Uh, Amos chapter 4. 
Minor Prophet, Book of Amos. Amos, this is kind of like Bible drilling, isn't this fun? Unless you just sit back and let them get it on the screen for you. It's cheating, it's cheating, all right? Look in Amos chapter 4. This is God speaking to Israel. He says, I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months of the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain. The field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city, drink water, would not be, uh, would not be satisfied, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. God saying, I tried to get your attention. You rebelled against me, and I, I, I withheld the rain. One city got it, another city didn't. So notice the specificity here. God can make it rain in one place and not rain in another place. Why? Because he's in control of the weather. And he was using trouble, uh, troubling weather patterns to get their attention. To say, listen, you need me. You remember a couple years ago there was a big drought in uh, Georgia? You remember there was a, a large stir when the governor of Georgia gathered on the steps of the Capitol and prayed for rain. Do you remember that? And I thought, that's awesome. Because that's why I believe God lets drought happen. To remind us that we need Him, right? And so here He's using weather uh, to, to get their attention. He's sovereign over nature. And boy, this is really clear over in Matthew. Turn over to Matthew where we see God on earth, Jesus Christ. And look what happens in Matthew chapter 8. This, this event really caught the disciples' attention. I mean, it really gripped their hearts. This was a kind of, a, uh, I believe, a turning point moment for them. Look what it says in Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. I love this story. When he got into the boat, that's Jesus, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, O Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O oh, you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds of the, and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? You see, they saw the breathtaking power, the breathtaking sovereignty of God over weather. Just to say, hey, stop blowing, and the wind stopped. It's amazing, isn't it? Why? God is sovereign over nature, and Jesus demonstrates that here. So let's talk about nature for a moment. Why are there devastating earthquakes and tsunamis? And, you know, we just celebrated the 10-year anniversary, or not celebrated, but remembered the 10-year anniversary of uh, Katrina. And, and you know, we, 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 we deal with these, these traumatic weather events. Well, one thing the Bible says in Romans 8, that the earth is living under a curse. When sin entered the world... All, all of the created order fell and has been cursed. And the created order is not like it ought to be. It's been cursed by sin. And so because we live in a sin-cursed world, even though we have mostly good days and good weather patterns, there still are things like hurricanes and tornadoes and tsunamis and earthquakes because we live in a sin-cursed world. But listen to me. God is sovereign over those things. And He can either cause them or allow them to happen. But he's the one calling the shots. He's in control of it all. He doesn't say, oops, man, that earthquake got by me. That, that one slipped past me. He's sovereign of the earthquake. And, and sometimes he'll allow it to happen for his own sovereign purposes. But he is in control. So God is sovereign over nature. Next, God is sovereign over physical infirmities. 
sickness, disease, malady, physical infirmities. Let's just do, uh, let's do one passage here. Turn over to John chapter 9. John chapter 9, another great story in God's Word. John chapter 9, verse 1. By the way, we'll take some questions in a moment, because I know I may be raising some questions of what I'm saying, and we'll, we'll address those in a moment. John chapter 9, verse 1. Look what it says. It says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? I've always felt bad for the blind man in this passage, because you kind of get the feeling that they're just kind of standing there, and they're talking about this guy, and he's like, hey, guys, I can hear you. I'm right here. I'm, you know, can you go somewhere else and talk about me? I mean, you know, they're just talking about the blind man. And look what Jesus says. Jesus answered, it was not this. By the way, the, the, the disciples had a very limited theology. And they thought, if someone's blind, it's because someone blew it. Someone messed up. Either he sinned bad or his parents did. But his blindness is punishment for his wrong behavior. Now, there are people that believe that, that if something bad happens physically, that God is out to get them. But look what Jesus says in John chapter 9. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents. In other words, his blindness has nothing to do with sin, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so Jesus here says, this man is blind for the glory of God. God's going to do something here to show his greatness. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, then anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back what? Seeing. Why? Because God's sovereign over physical infirmities. And God has a purpose in them. We can't always understand that this side of heaven. We don't understand why, uh, why things happen. Now again, because we live in a sin-cursed world, there are diseases, right? Diabetes and cancer and, and all these, these things that trouble us and our families. That they're, they're realities because we live in a world cursed by sin. That's why there's death. And one day God's going to redeem it all. And He's going to take us to heaven and there'll be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more death. I can't wait to get to heaven. How about you? As the old song says, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be, Right? But until then, we live in a sin-cursed world, a fallen world. And one of the results of the fall is, is human sickness. Just, that's, that's just one of the results. That's why we have, you know, that's why I'm wearing glasses right now. Right? That's why we got to go to the dentist. That, that's why we have to go to the doctor, because we live in a sin-cursed world. But even in the midst of that, God's in control. And He, he can allow or even cause certain things for His glory, to show His greatness. And so listen to me, listen to me. Just because we go through something difficult doesn't mean God's lost control. He's still sovereign over physical infirmities, and we have to trust Him in the midst of that. So God is sovereign over people, nations and kings, nature, physical infirmities, and He's sovereign over the demonic realm. That's Satan and his demons. The demonic realm and I don't have you turn there. We'll just go, I'll just tell you the story quickly. But in Job chapter 1, if you remember the story, the Bible says that Satan came before the Lord in heaven. It's, it's as if Satan had to give a report as to what he's been up to. Why? Because Satan is a created being. 
God made him, and the created being has to answer to the authority of the creator, right? And, and Satan challenges God. Well, actually, God brought up Job, and God said, Hey, Satan, if you consider my servant Job, he's, he's righteous, he's faithful, you know, he, he follows me, he's obedient, he's a godly man. And Satan says, the only reason he follows you is because you've blessed him so much. If you'll take away his blessing, he'll, he'll, he won't follow you anymore. He won't be faithful and obedient anymore. And so God, listen to this, and this is so important for you and me. God allows Satan to afflict Job to demonstrate, listen to me, that you can lose everything, but Jesus is still enough. Did you hear that? Job demonstrates for us that you can lose everything, but if you have God, you have enough. That's the purpose of the whole thing. And so God's going to let us see this in the story of Job. So he gives Satan permission to afflict Job, but he has him on a leash. you notice the leash? You can, you can touch his life, his health, all that, but, but you, you, you can't kill him. You can't kill him. So he allows Satan to afflict Job, but notice Satan is on a leash. Why? God's in control of Satan. A lot of times we think about spiritual warfare as kind of this, you know, this kind of cosmic boxing match. And you got you know, God in, in one corner and Satan in the other corner, and they're kind of going at it all the time. It's nothing like that. God has already won the battle. Satan is doomed, and he knows it. And one day he's going to be cast into the lake of fire. God has already won. And he's in control of Satan and the demonic realm. Now, he allows him to wreak havoc, and we'll understand that all better by, by and by. When we all get to heaven, God will maybe show us some of that. But here's the deal. God is calling the shots. Satan is not sovereign. Satan is not all-powerful. Satan is not ever-present. Satan is not all-knowing. He's a created being that is limited, and God rules and, reign over, rules and reigns over Satan and his demons. Another example is found over in Luke 8 when uh, Jesus encounters the man in the cemetery, and he, he makes the demons talk to him. They say, we are legion, we are legion, there's so many demons in this man, and they're scared that Jesus is going to throw them into the abyss, cast them into the abyss, and that's, a entirely, uh, that's another sermon for another day. But, but they said, don't, don't cast us into the abyss, put us in those pigs over there. And so, say, uh, so Jesus casts them out of the man and, and, and directs them to the pigs. They go in the pigs, the pigs run over the cliff, and they die. Remember that story? That's Jesus exercising his sovereignty over the demonic realm. He was the one calling the shots. And so God is so sovereign over Satan. So listen, we need to be aware, we need to be vigilant. Satan's a roaring lion seeking those whom he can devour. But when it comes to spiritual warfare, we need to be confident that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Got it? Now, let's talk implications for a moment. I'll take some questions and we'll be through. Okay, wait, what does all this mean? That God's sovereign over every area and aspect of, of my life. What does this mean for my day-to-day living? Well, first of all, trust him in good times and in bad times. Trust him in good times and bad times. Look over in Psalm 62 with me. Psalm 62 is just, it's just beautiful and powerful. Psalm 62. If you're still with me, say amen. Okay. Psalm 62, verse 1. Again, a psalm of David. He says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning 
wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah. So David's saying here, listen, I'm surrounded by bad people. And, and most of David's life, he had people after him. Either, you know, Saul tried to kill him early on in his life, and then the Philistines, he had battle after battle with the Philistines. And then you remember his son Absalom rebelled against him and took, uh, gathered a great army to try to overthrow David's rule. So David had enemies around him all the time. But look what he says in verse 5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Now look in verse 8. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. So, David says, whether you are living a life that is just blessed and wonderful and fun and easy and wonderful and bright and happy, or whether you are surrounded by enemies, trust the Lord at all times. And this isn't some kind of stoic trust where you say, okay, I'm just going to suck it up and, and, uh, and just kind of make it through this tough time. Notice what he says. Pour out your heart before him. God wants you to trust him. But listen... God also wants you to come to him with your pain. He wants you to share with him what's on your heart and and how you're struggling. He wants you to be honest with him. He wants you to bring your hurts and your disappointment and your confusion and your bewilderment and your perplexity. He wants you to bring it to his throne of grace. He wants to heal you and he wants to help you. But you've got to trust him. Trust Him at all times. It's easy to trust God when things are going good. But when the wheels fall off, that's when the rubber meets the road. That's when Christian maturity happens. When times are tough. Do you trust God when times are difficult? Do you trust God when life doesn't make sense? Do you trust God when you are miserable? Do you trust God when you are grieving? Do you trust God when you don't know what to do next? Do you trust God when your heart is full of fear? Do you trust God when anxiety is a heavy weight upon your life? That's Christian maturity. That you trust God all times. And the reason that you and I can trust God at all times is because He's sovereign. He's in control. That never changes. Even though our circumstances change, the fact that he's calling the shots doesn't change. So you can trust him at all times. I love this quote from Jerry Bridges. He writes, by the way, the title of this book is Trusting God, which I highly recommend you read. It's an entire book about the sovereignty of God. He writes, confidence in the sovereignty of God in all in all, that affects us is crucial to our trusting Him. If there is a single event in all of the universe that can occur outside of God's sovereign control, then we cannot trust Him. His love may be infinite, but if His power is limited and His purpose can be thwarted, we cannot trust Him. In other words, if God's not really all-powerful and all-knowing, then we can't really count on Him coming through, can we? But if He is all-powerful and He is all-knowing, we can trust Him at all. All times. Here's what Margaret Margaret Clarkson writes. The sovereignty of God is, I love this, 
the one impregnable rock to which the suffering human heart must cling. The circumstances surrounding our lives are no accident. Did you hear what she just wrote? The circumstances surrounding our lives are no accident. They may be the work of evil, but that evil is held firmly within the mighty hand of our sovereign God. All evil is subject to him, and evil, watch this, cannot touch his children unless he permits it. God is the Lord of human history and of the personal history of every member of his redeemed family. So listen, even if you're going through something caused by somebody else that's evil, you can trust God. Because nothing and no one can touch your life unless God allows it. Now look at me for a moment. If God allows hardship, if he allows someone evil to afflict you, he has a purpose behind it. He's going to somehow use it for your ultimate good and his ultimate glory. Romans 8, 28, God works all things together for the good of those that love God to those called according to his purpose. So think about that. Nothing can touch your life unless God allows it. Do you believe that? That means That's what we mean by God being sovereign. And if God allows it, he has a purpose for it. And you may not understand it. You may not understand this out of heaven. But I believe one day, when we all get to heaven and we gather together and we look back over our lives, we will marvel at how God used the good and the bad, the wonderful, the difficult, and he, he wove it all together to make something beautiful out of our lives for his glory. That's what God's doing right now. And so the sovereignty of God, the fact that God is in control, is the one impregnable rock to which the suffering human heart must cling. So trust him in good times and in bad times. Number two, rest in him. Rest in him. Look over in Psalm 131, another Psalm of David. One of the songs of ascent. These were songs that the, the Jewish people would sing as they approached Jerusalem for festivals of worship. In Psalm 131, look what David writes here. I love these three verses. This is so good. This, this, this passage right here is going to help some of you tonight. O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. In other words, David's saying, I don't have all the answers. I'm not proud and arrogant thinking I have all the answers. David's saying, I'm just being honest. I, I can't figure some things out. But verse 2 tells us he's okay with that. Look what he says. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. David's saying here in so many words, hey, I'm not God, and I'm okay with that. I don't understand what's all going on in my life. I'm okay with that because I know God's got it covered. He's in control. And because of that, I can rest. This morning I was leaving the house and uh, leaving early and... and uh, Connor, my one-year-old, was stirring, and so I went and got him and brought him to Claire. Claire was laying in the bed, and I, and I laid him down beside Claire. And you want a happy child? He nestled up next to Claire, and he put his thumb in his mouth and started holding his ear. And just, I mean, he looked so comfortable. And, and like, he just had, had it made. That's the picture here David's saying. David's saying, listen, 
Life is difficult. Life is hard. I don't understand it all, but I know God's in control, and so I can rest in him just like a, a, a weaned child can rest by his mother. That's what he's saying. And so not only does God want us to trust him and have this kind of, you know, endurance, you know, just make it through it, but he wants us to rest. He wants us to, he wants us to just leave it in his hands. Isn't that what he said over in 1 Peter chapter 5? He said, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. And so rest in him. I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He writes, The sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving perfect peace. The doctrine of the sovereignty of God is like a soft pillow. It'll help you sleep, It'll help you sleep good. So if you go to sleep, you can know. I pray this over my kids at night. I say, I say Lord, I'm grateful tonight as, as I took my kids in and we're going to sleep. I'm grateful that you never sleep. The Bible says you don't sleep, you don't slumber, you watch over your children. So God, you got it covered. So I'm grateful. We're, we're going to bed tonight. And I'm going to sleep great because you've got it covered. The sovereignty of God will really help you sleep better. It'll help you rest because you know that God is in control. Now listen to me, I'm not minimizing hurt and pain. Don't, don't hear me saying that. Pain and hurt is real and it's tough. And, and life is tough, and life is difficult. I'm, I've been with some families this week, walking through some things with some families this week. They're going through some very difficult times. Uh, preached a funeral this afternoon. I've got a funeral on Sunday afternoon. And, and, and just, it's sad. There's some sad things happening. I'm not minimizing the grief and the hurt and the pain, but I am saying, even in the midst of the hard times, God is on His throne. You can rest. You can, you can trust Him. And here's the final thing. The final thing, trust him in good times and bad times, rest in him, but third, worship him. Worship him. Look what it says over in Psalm 115. Psalm 115. The psalmist here says, verse 1, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. That's what worship is. Worship is saying, I don't deserve glory, God. You deserve glory. I'm going to give you all the glory. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Look in verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He makes this, this statement of the sovereignty of God. God's in heaven. He does what he wants to do. And because he's good, everything he wants to do is the right thing to do. And so in the midst of, of, of thinking of God's sovereignty, he says, God, you get the glory. Because that's the kind of God you are. You are sovereign. This past... Uh, Earlier this week, I was speaking at a breakout in, at a conference in Jackson, and I shared the story of, of Dawson Trotman, and I think I've shared it here before as well, but Dawson Trotman was a young Christian leader in the kind of middle part of the 1900s, and he was a fiery evangelist, great leader, sharp mind. Uh, I mean, Dawson Trotman, he started a, a ministry called The Navigators, which is still operating on college campuses and uh, it, they have groups that are uh, working among our military personnel and in churches. Navigator is a great discipleship-focused ministry. How many of you have heard of the Navigators before? How many? Okay, good. Uh, Dawson Trotman was the founder, and he was up. He was a contemporary of Billy Graham. I mean, he was. Everybody saying this guy's going to be, you know, the next great Christian leader in our nation. And, and as a young man at a very young age, Dawson Trotman died in a drowning accident. Just tragic. Just, you know, and you think, man, why? And his wife was not with him. His, his wife's name was Lila. So they called her. 
And they said, Lila Dawson uh, died today in a, in a tragic drowning accident. You know what the first words were out of her mouth? Psalm 115, verse 3. The Lord is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Not minimizing her pain or her hurt, but she knew that God was in control. And she could give him glory even in the midst of great grief. And so we need to trust him. We need to rest in him. We need to worship him. We need to remind ourselves constantly. Because even though we talk about this and we say amen and we, we know this in our head, sometimes it doesn't make it to our hearts. We've got to constantly remind ourselves that, that no matter what's happening, God is in control. He's calling the shots.